You are listening to Melbourne Lights Church Weekly Podcast. Give your Bibles, would you open them with me to Matthew chapter 22? I need to start preaching because I haven't preached for a few weeks and I've got lots in me this morning. Um, very excited for what God's going to do. You know, when we sing about the goodness of God, I realize that, as Olaf shared, sometimes it's a declaration of faith. Because where we're standing at the moment, we don't necessarily see his goodness. But it doesn't change who he is. And one of the marks of maturity is being able to declare the character and nature of who God is, despite the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And it's actually one of the things that when we're in the valley of the shadow of death, we're in the valley place that brings us through. Because when we're there, we don't set up camp and stay there. When we're there, we still declare the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God. You say, well, how can you sing um, that, God, you're so good? You don't know what I'm going through. No, I don't know everything that you're going through, but God's still good. And one of the biggest challenges for believers is the time between the promise and the fulfillment. The time between the now and the not yet. Do we still trust that God is who he says he is, that he's good and that he's faithful, even though we haven't seen the fulfillment of the promise yet? It's a challenge for us as we journey in faith that we go, God, I'm trusting for this breakthrough. Lord, I'm believing that what you've said is true, even though I haven't seen it yet. Lord, I'm still going to contend for this healing, even though I've been prayed for before and I'm not walking in that healing yet. We believe that God heals, so we pray for the sick. And I don't have all the answers as to why some people get healed and some people don't. I mean, we celebrate because God heals. And we have testimony after testimony of his healing. But then why do some people not get healed? I don't know, but I know that God heals. Why do some people have, like, uh, seem to be facing hardship and others seem to be in, in, the, in the favor of God? I don't know, but I still know that God's good. His character is unchanging. And one of the challenges for us as believers is despite what we're facing, to, de- to continue to declare his goodness and who he is. For somebody this morning, you need to hear that. You're in that place where you go, I'm, I, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope. And I understand that. I do understand it. But will you just declare it again? I I, I look around the room as we sing God, you're so good. And I know some of the things that people are facing. You guys might not know some of the, the, you know, the, the health battles, some of the, you know, the, the financial difficulties, some of the family things. And to be able to stand and sing God, you're so good in the face of what you're facing. It's one of those things that as, as a leader, I just go, wow, thank you, Jesus. And we stand together as a church family and contend for those breakthroughs and contend for that, you know, for, for, for that, that fullness and that freedom and that healing to come. We're in the last week of our series, Dressed for the Kingdom. We're going to finish up the series today. Who's enjoyed the series? Who's been challenged by the series? Um, we've been unpacking the, the significance of some of the things that God um, calls us to put on as believers and actually gives us to wear. Um, the Lord tells us to, to, to put things on, and we're looking at how some of those things shape our identity as believers, who we are, and um, how we live as followers of Jesus. So what's the spiritual clothing of sons and daughters of the Most High? What's the spiritual clothing of a kingdom of priests who are called to extend the kingdom by making disciples? 
We started by looking at being clothed with the garments of salvation. That literally we're called to put on Christ. We're called to, to put on Christ and to become like him. Um, then we looked at, at uh, having robes of righteousness. That part, one of the benefits of salvation is that when God sees us, he sees us as righteous. We have right standing before the Lord. We talked about being clothed with humility. It's about being clothed with purity and holiness. We've unpacked putting on the armor of God. And what does that look like? We looked at being clothed with power from on high. What a Sunday that was. I, I listened to the, uh, to the podcast and I really, w- I was like, oh man, I wish I was there. We talked about um, putting on garments of praise. Last week, Paul looked at being clothed to serve. And this week, I want to finish this series with being prepared for the groom or putting on wedding garments. We found Matthew 22. It's going to come up on the screen as well. It says this. And again, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to those who were invited to the wedding feast. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he said to other servants, uh, he, again, he sent other servants saying, Tell them, who are invited. See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While they seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. Fair enough. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then the servants, uh, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found, both bad and good, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man with no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. And the king said to to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Interesting passage. A marriage has been arranged for the king's son. The initial invitations are sent out so that everyone on the guest list could make plans to attend. And in those times, it took some time to travel. You didn't just book a plane and jump on the plane. You had to make some arrangements. You had to get people to look after your farm or your place, and you had to actually go. I mean, it's a long walk. Most people walked. It took some time to put things into place. Plans had to be made. However, those that were invited to attend the wedding declined. So a second, more urgent invitation sent out and to, to the same people because the time was getting short. The wedding feast is approaching. But those people paid little heed to it as well. They're caught up in their own activities and in their own ventures. They stated by their actions that they had very little care for the king and his son. In fact, it says that they felt that they were self-sufficient with their farms and their shops and their businesses. They felt they had no need of anything. And Revelation 3, verse 15 and 19 has a similar thought To this, it says this I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Proving their contempt, they treated the king's servants who had personally borne the invitations to them with disrespect. They even killed some of them. The king sent out his own servants to say, come to the feast, come to this thing. You're invited to be in my presence at the feast with me. And their response was, was not just to say no, but to actually kill some of the servants who he'd sent. The king is rightfully furious. He musters his forces. He avenges his, uh, his, his maltreated servants and the disrespect that's shown to him. His kindness and generosity is spurned and he responds with wrath. A third invitation gets sent out. This one, for this invitation, the guest list is changed. It's changed from those who are specially invited to the everyday person. Those, some who are good, some who are bad. He says, go out and invite everyone. Go out and invite everyone. This, in this way, finally people respond and they begin to come. And the, the wedding hall is filled with guests. Now, the custom of those days was that the, for the one hosting the wedding feast, in this case, it was the king, it was a custom to provide wedding garments for the guests. Because I'm reading this and going, why is he so angry at the one guy who's not wearing wedding garments? That doesn't seem very nice. Because I'm thinking in our own context, you know, you get invited to a wedding and, you know, you, maybe you buy a suit or some nice pants and a jacket, and, you know, the ladies get a dress and you get dressed up, but you kind of wear what you want. But in those days, it was a little bit different. It was the person putting on the wedding that provided wedding garments for the guests. And the wedding garments were like a simple, nondescript sort of robe that all the attendees wore. And the reason they did this, it's a very kingdom reason, was that rank or station was covered so that everybody at the feast could mingle as equals. See, when we go to a wedding, we want to look the best. We want everyone to look at us. And go, look at how good I look. I want to look better than everyone else at the wedding. And they realized that at the time because there were some people who could afford really nice things. There are some people who were invited who could have the best clothes. But there was other people who were invited who actually couldn't afford anything. What a kingdom thought. And the king says, no, no, I don't want anyone to feel different or to be treated different at this feast. So they would give wedding garments to wear. So that no matter who you were, no matter what your station in life, no matter where you were invited from, when you came to the feast with the king, you were of equal standing. It's the same for us in the kingdom. We're invited to feast with the king. And we talk, we've talked about garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. So that when the king looks at us, we're all equal before him. There's no hierarchy in the kingdom. There's no more important people in the kingdom. When God looks at us, he sees us as equal because when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. <clears throat> Revelations 19 verse 8 defines this symbol of the wedding garment. The wedding garment identifies 
the righteous, those who are living, living according to God's ways. And it says this, Revelation 19 from verse 6. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. There's this picture, when we, when, we, when we hear Jesus tell the parable about the wedding feast, there's a picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb, of being with Jesus. There's this picture of being clothed in righteousness, of having the, the, the wedding garments, and coming and feasting with the king. When the king enters the wedding hall, he notices that one guest clearly stood out. Welcome, Jesus. I don't know. That was, I've never seen both doors open and just fly open. That was cool. Well done. See you, see you Craig. Welcome, Jesus. Bye, Craig. There was one guest who stood out because he wasn't wearing the wedding garment. Having this man brought forward, the king asked, friend, how did you come to be in here without a wedding garment? The sense of this question could have been, I can't believe what I'm seeing. What, what are you doing? Why are you not wearing the wedding garment that I gave to you? It might have been better phrased, why are you not we we wearing the wedding garment even though it was provided for you? It's almost like he's like, I've never seen this before. I don't, like, what, what are you doing? The man was plainly not dressed correctly for the occasion. And if you don't understand that the wedding garments were given to the guests, you think that's very harsh. Maybe this, you, know, you start thinking, maybe you couldn't afford it. Maybe he was one of those guys that they just invited, invited from the highways and byways and he came in. But that's not the case here. It's been provided for him. See, his lack of a wedding garment was another example of the extreme disrespect for both the king and the son. The wording, and he was speechless, indicates that the man standing there was without excuse. It's not just that he lacked a wedding garment because it had been provided for him. It was that he didn't want to wear one on purpose. He had defiantly refused to put on what the king had given him. This is why the king reacts so swiftly. Because you read this and you go, that seems like a harsh reaction. Guy's not wearing a wedding garment, and he, <laughs> this is what the king says. He says, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's talking about eternity. This is a picture of heaven and hell. And you go, that seems like a harsh response. But when you understand that he's been given a garment to put on, he's been invited into the feast, yet his response is, no, I'm not going to do it. It wasn't that I don't have it, it's that I'm not going to do it then you understand the king's response. His judgment is not against the man's lack of wedding garment per se, but that he didn't intend to wear one. That he was in fact determined not to wear one. The man desired the honor of attending the wedding feast, but he didn't want to follow the custom of the king. He wanted to do things his own way. His lack of proper dress revealed his inner rebellion against the king and his instructions, and he was executed as a rebel. So what can we learn from this passage? In this passage, the king represents God. The son is Jesus. 
The wedding is a picture of salvation. There's, there's, there's some now, there's some now um, uh, uh, connotations. There's some now applications, but there's also some eternal applications. Thank you, Dave. Um, we are the wedding guests. Thank you, Gabby. Um, we're the wedding guests in this picture. We've been invited. And the wedding garment is God's pattern. It's his way of living that we're to put on when we choose to follow him. It's provided for us. He shows it to us. He gives it to us. And he says, I've invited you to the feast. I've invited you into my presence. I've invited you to eat with me, to be in the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I've given you what you need. So what can we learn? Firstly, God's invitation to the wedding is for everyone. But we can only enter through Jesus. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, to, it says, Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one invitation to the wedding or to salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. It's there for everyone. It goes out, and God says, come to the wedding. Come to the feast. I want to feast with you. But the only way to get into that wedding feast, the only way to salvation is through Jesus. It's not for everyone in whatever way they want. It's for everyone if they'll choose to come through Jesus. All roads do not lead to God. It's the lie of our culture that you just choose your way and in the end you'll get to the same God. It's not true. God himself says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way except through Jesus. That's not a popular opinion to preach in our society and in our culture. But it's what Jesus says of himself. How can we follow Jesus yet not believe what he says of himself? Jesus himself very clearly says, no one comes to the Father except through me. The invitation is there, but it's only through Jesus. The second thing we can learn from this passage is that many ignored the invitation because they got busy with the things of life or they felt they didn't need God. It's one of the biggest challenges of our Western culture. God's invited you and I to his kingdom. But so often we ignore the invitation because we have other things going on. I mean, what a devastating thought that God's invited us to his very presence. That the King of kings and Lord of lords, the King of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth has invited you and I to feast with him, to sit with him, to be in his presence. But we don't, become, we don't come because we're doing other things. What can be more important? You go, well, when you say it that way, it sounds you know, like, of course. And everyone sits in the church meeting on a Sunday and amens it. But then we go out and live the rest of our life in exactly what he's saying right here. I don't have time. I got other things going on. There's other things in my life that are more important than this. We don't actually think we need a savior because things seem to be going pretty well. I know that's not the case for everyone, but it's the case for many in our culture and in our society. It's the case for many of us. We actually, when we get deep down to the heart of it, don't think we really need a savior because things are going pretty well. And the truth is, it doesn't matter how well things are going in your life. There's only one way to the feast, and it's through Jesus. We all need a savior. Romans says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And here's the thing, nobody can determine your priorities except for you. It would be much easier as a leader in a family or community of people if I could determine your priorities. But I can't. That's, it's weird and controlling, and I can't do it even if I wanted to. Only you can determine your priorities. Only you can determine what you give your time to. And this is Jesus telling a parable in Jesus' time, saying many didn't come because they just went, I've got other things going on. When we were in Indo, I was talking to a couple who had come from somewhere else, and you don't, none of you know them, so it doesn't matter. Um, they were a lovely couple. They were a good part of the team that was there. Um, and we had actually been at the church that they're from sometime last year. And I said to him, I, I didn't meet you um, when we were there last year. I must have missed you. Um, and, and the guy, this is literally what he says. He says, yeah, we don't go every week. I was like, oh, okay. He, he goes, like, you know, and he says, I mean, church is important to us. But we've just decided it's not important enough to go every week. And I was like, you're, you're in Indonesia. You know that. And you, I lead a church. Are you telling you, like, you're that, it was honest at least. I was like, well, at least you're honest. But seriously, you guys are quiet because actually some of you guys have made the same decision. <laughs> church is important to us. It's just not important enough to go every week. The kingdoms, of course the kingdom is important. Of course I love Jesus. I just don't love him enough to spend time with him every day. I, I was gobsmacked. I, I, and I'm constantly gobsmacked. And I don't really know what to do about it except to pray. And to preach the truth that's in the word. Many of us live like that. God's inviting us to a better way. But many of us ignore his invitation. Do you actually trust him? Because see, the heart of it is actually I don't trust him. It's important, but I don't actually trust him enough to make it the bedrock of my life. It's kind of important, but not important enough to go every week. It's kind of important, but not important enough to commit a night a week to go to discipleship. It's not important enough to actually set my alarm a little bit earlier to get up and spend time with him. I think many believers need to ruthlessly look at their calendars and diaries and make some radical changes. God's inviting us to a better way, but many are ignoring his invitation. And the thing is this, nobody can determine your priorities except for you. And you'll wake up if you don't do this in 20 years time and go, why am I in the same place again? Why am I still struggling with the same things? Why have I not seen God come through? Why do I keep singing, God, you're so good, but he seems to never be good to me? Because he's said, here's the garment, here's the way, here's the better way for you. And we go, yeah, but I got other things going on. Thank you, Siri. I'll take that amen. It's funny in church when people don't amen, but Siri's amening for you. She's like, you need to hear this. Thirdly, the only way to appease the wrath of God is through accepting his invitation to put our faith and trust in his son, Jesus. See, we don't like the idea of God's wrath, but it actually is a biblical truth. See, in Romans uh, 1 verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. No, 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 God's only loving. Well, God is loving, 
but there's also, he's also has wrath. You go, oh, that, that, I don't like that. It's because we haven't been taught the whole truth. And it's not against a certain type of person. The wrath of God is for everyone who has sinned, which is every single one of us, unless we accept the sacrifice of Jesus. See, if you understand wrath uh, in the terms of being vengeful, then you might find it hard to reconcile the wrath of God and the love of God. I get that. But if the wrath of God is simply his righteous judgment on sinful humanity, then there's no real conflict between the two. Because all of humanity is deserving of punishment. Romans 3, verse 22 and 23. For there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A righteous God would correctly give us what we've earned. But God's also love. So what does that look like? It means he's provided a way for redemption. Faith in the atoning blood of his son. Yes, if, if, if there is the wrath of God that is rightly poured out upon us. And because he's loving, he goes, that's not all you get. Because I'm loving, here's an invitation through Jesus to actually come sit with me in my presence. I've made a way through my own sacrifice for you to be made right with me, to appease, to appease the wrath of God. See, the love of God doesn't throw out or negate the wrath of God. It fulfills it. It pays the price for it. Bad theology says God's only loving. Good theology says God is loving, but there's also, he's also holy, and he's also righteous, and he's also without sin, and he's also other, and all of those things coexist together, which is why Jesus had to come. The only way to appease the wrath of God is through accepting his invitation to put our faith in his son Jesus. Finally, what can we learn from this passage? We can't claim the honor of attending the wedding feast but not follow the customs of the king. We can't claim the honor of attending the wedding feast and not follow the customs of the king. Here it is. This is the root issue of a me-focused, selfish, Western Christianity, if you can even call it Christianity. I want the benefit. I want the honor. I want the status. But I don't want to follow his ways. I want in, but I don't want to repent. I want the anointing, but I don't want to sacrifice and discipline. We can't claim the benefits of salvation, but refuse to do things God's way. I know this isn't the easiest preach to preach, and it's not the easiest preach to hear, I'm sure, but it's truth. It's the reality of the Bible, and if you don't like it, too bad. Because honestly, we're not here just to preach preaches that we like. We're here to be transformed by his presence. And if that's not why we're here, then go somewhere else. People go, why are you always trying to get people to leave the church? I'm not. I'm trying to get us to grow up. I want you to stay and mature. But if you're determined not to put on the wedding garment, then go somewhere else. Because we're a people who are going to mature and become more like Jesus. Because we want to do what he's called us to do. We can't claim the benefits. We can't walk, say, I'm going to walk in this, but not be willing to do things God's way. It's just that simple. 
I mean, I don't know how many times we can preach a preach and go, the, the, the application is, you know, read your Bible, spend time with God, and just do what he said. I mean, literally, I want to end every preach with, just do what he says. I mean, it's like, there's only so many creative ways you can find to say the same thing. Why am I in the place that I'm in? Because you don't do what he says. Why am I in the place? Why, why do I still feel brokenness? You don't even read the Bible. How do you expect the blessing of God to rest upon your life? How do you expect breakthrough? How do you expect healing to come? You won't even read the Bible. Salvation by its very nature requires me to turn away from living for myself and now live for God according to his pattern and standard. So we can't claim salvation and not live according to his pattern and standard. The two don't go, they don't meet. Like the one is contingent upon the other. The man desired the honor of attending the wedding feast, but he did not want to wear the wedding garment. He didn't want to follow the custom of the king. He wanted to do things his own way. How often do we live like this in our lives? I mean, this is a preach for me. You know, this is not, I'm not just preaching at you. This is for every single one of us today. How often do we find ourselves going, God, I, I want to be at the feast, but I still want to do things my own way. That's why we have to constantly put to death the desires of the flesh. We constantly have to come back to Jesus and say, God, I want to do things your way. And every time he shows us, we have to, kind of, we have to respond again and put ourselves to death again. Because it keeps coming up. And we keep whacking it. And we go, no, you're dead. You were baptized. You're buried with Christ. Like you don't get to get out of the grave. The old man's dead. Get dead again. Get back in the grave. Stop putting your head out. Get back in the box. Get in the bowl. <laughs> So often, though, we, we, we want people to pursue relationship with me in the church. But don't expect me to commit to a discipleship group. I mean, honestly, and then people, I'll tell you exactly what will happen. In two years' time, at the most, within 12 to 24 months, people will come. They sit with one of us as leaders, and they go, oh, nobody's friendly. I don't have any friends. I don't feel like I'm connected in the church. They go, well, are you in a discipleship group? No. Do you come regularly? No. Sorry. I don't know what you want me to do. We want the benefit, but we don't want to do what he's asked us to do. The church should be more supporting of people in need. But don't expect me to bring tithes or give offerings. Well, how do you expect that we support people in need? Because the church is people. So when you say the church should help people, you're saying all of you guys should give your money, but I'm not going to give mine. We're saying the leaders should give their time, but I don't want to give mine. Now, that's not everybody. Lots of people, lots of us do give and give our time and help people. But often that's the heart, is you should do this, but don't expect me to contribute. I mean, God's pattern is very clear, that if the church is going to be healthy, that the people who are part of the local church bring tithes and give offerings and live a generous life and give their time and give their talents and, and invest and serve so that the Church has impact. Very quiet. I move jobs. I even move cities. Because it looks like a better offer or a better lifestyle. But I've never actually asked God what he wants. I want the blessing. I want the joy. I want the peace. 
of being a son of God, a daughter of God, but I'm not going to live the way he expected me to. See, the man's lack of proper dress revealed his inner rebellion against the king and his instructions. That's the issue in this passage. That's the garments, the wedding garments. That's being prepared for the wedding feast of the Lamb, for the return of the king. The man was operating out of selfishness and rebellion. And it's something that we all face at different times. So stop thinking about the person next to you and start thinking about yourself. Rather than following the king's instructions, he says, my way is better, I'll do it my way. The king says, come in to my presence, come and feast with me, I've given you what you need. And the man looks at him and says, I want to be here, but my way is better. While in our fallen world, that attitude is applauded and celebrated, in the kingdom, that attitude leaves us executed as a rebel. It leaves us without salvation. Because we can't claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but then live as if we're our own Lord and Savior. Either you're your Savior or he's your Savior, but it can't be both. The very fact of saying, Jesus, I want to follow you as my Lord and Savior means you have to dethrone yourself. You can't stay on the throne and put him on the throne. He won't sit on your lap. You have to get off. And he has to get on. He becomes the Lord. He becomes the Savior. We can't have both. It's one or the other. It's Jesus or yourself. And you can sit in church your whole life. You can even read your Bible and still functionally look to yourself as your Savior. I don't want to stand before the Lord at the end and he goes, well, you, you've always looked to yourself as your Savior, so what do you have to appease? Because I have nothing. I don't want to rely upon myself. That's why we're here. It's about Jesus. It's about him. So you've all seen different things that we're called to put on as followers of Jesus. All those things are available to us. They're free gifts. We don't have to make it happen. The garment of salvation, there's nothing you can do to earn it. Literally, it's by putting your faith in Jesus. Robes of righteousness. He says they're here. They're for you. It's not do enough things and then you graduate to the robe of righteousness and then tick enough boxes and store up enough coins and somehow you'll get to the, 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 the armor of the Lord. He gives it to us. God provides it for us, but so many of us still want to live in the place of rebellion and we refuse to do things God's way and we hide it under spiritual language. None of us go, there's, there's not any Christian or believer that I've ever met who goes, yeah, I'm doing things my way, stuff God. We hide it under spiritual language. Do you really feel like the Lord's leading me to a new, a new season of, it's going to be of increased impact. I'm sure it's of, of greater impact and calling. But it's just, it's not going to be here because it's probably going to be in Queensland because it's really sunny there. Or it's going to be in, I'm pretty sure it's in Bali because the weather's really nice there or, you know, whatever it is. We, we, we hide it in spiritual language. The, you know, the Lord's telling me that I don't need to, actually, I've, I've had a new revelation that I don't tithe because God actually wants me to be a blessing. God's blessed me to be a blessing to others. I'm like, yeah, cool. It's in the Bible. 
So God didn't tell you that because it goes against his word. Anyway, I'm going to sidetracked. We hide it under spiritual language, but the root is that I'm going to do it my way. And like the king in the parable, as a leader, it leaves me speechless. I go, when our heart's like that, I don't know what I can do. I don't know what we can do except for pray. God says this, it's my way, and my way is good, and my way is the best. We have to believe that. We have to allow that to get into our heart and say, even though I don't see it, and even though everything in our culture says, do it your way. Your way is better. You know everything. He says, my way is better. My way is good for you. My way is the best. If you trust me, it will be better for you. I provided for you through the blood of my son. I've called leaders to dedicate their lives to pray for you and to lead you and to pray with tears for what's best for you. To support you, to have your highest in mind. If you'll just trust me, you can be healed. You can be whole. You can be free. You can live with impact. You can live with meaning and value. Yet for many, our response is like the man at the wedding. And we say, what do you know, God? We actually act like pensionate children. Screaming, you don't know me. That's the heart of saying Jesus actually isn't my savior, it's myself. God, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through. I mean, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? Because he knows everything. But we act like that. And we actually spit in the face of our heavenly father. Because we say, I know better than you know. And the thing is this, we never make it as believers. There isn't a point outside of eternity where we go, I've made it. Look at, oh. We don't reach the, like, we don't believe in a point of enlightenment. That's not Christianity, that's Buddhism. If someone's taught you that, then you're following a different religion. We don't make it as believers. Until the day we go to be with Jesus in eternity, we have a choice to continue to prepare ourselves for the wedding feast of the Lamb. To continue to put on the, gar- the garments of salvation, to continue to, be- to put on the-, the wedding garments and say, God, I'm going to do it your way. Even though I don't understand, I might not understand the value of that wedding garment and the fact that I can sit with kings and with paupers and God sees me the same. I might not fully understand that, but I'm going to do it because it's your way. God, wouldn't it be easier rather than getting people to bring tithes and offerings? Couldn't you just give us money to use for the kingdom? Couldn't, like, couldn't Mark just win the $100 million lottery so that we don't have to worry about tithes and offerings and we can just never have to talk about that again? I mean, if God, if you want it for Mark, give it to him. But I think God's like, no, my way is better. I know it doesn't make sense to you, but my way is better. Actually, it involves everyone. And actually, it not only does it provide for the kingdom, it provides for you. It directs your heart. It sets you free. There's like, I don't know why, the money is an easy one to like talk about because it's just the least. But whatever it is, we go, no, no, no. Like, surely there's a better way. God goes, no, my way is the better way. We have a choice to keep preparing ourselves for the wedding feast. We have a choice to keep our lamps full of oil. We have a choice to continue to put on the things of the kingdom, to search out God's ways and to respond to them and to imply them to our lives. You have a choice. You don't have to do it, but you have a choice. And God's saying, will you do this? My way is better. 
Don't wait until, for 20 years. Don't wait until your kids are older to realize that it was better for them to be in church. Don't wait until you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're 50 years old to realize it was better to do it God's way. Because God's gracious and God keeps inviting and God keeps sending out the invites and he keeps saying, come to the feast and come sit with me. But the more we say no and the more we say I've got other things to do and the more we say I'm going to do it my way, the more hurt we store up, the more pain we store up, the more that we go, wow, my gosh, I'm living in this whole place of brokenness. And he's faithful and able to restore, but you don't have to go through that brokenness. I just wanted to be like Jordan. (laughs) To restore you. I'm a real boy. <laughs> Hard truth lands better when we laugh sometimes. <laughs> oh. We put on the wedding garment. We continue to prepare ourselves, prepare ourselves for the turn of the king. As long as we continue to do that, we're becoming more like Jesus. We're becoming more sanctified. He's using us. We're we're being transformed. But there's a choice for us to make. Would you stand with, us, with me this morning? Jordy, could you come up and just share that picture that you had at the start? Oh. Um, yeah, I just had this picture earlier of, I guess, an, or I guess, yeah, the notion to pray against an orphan spirit um, yeah, the thing about well, what I felt God was saying is that this orphan spirit convinces us, it convinces our soul and our mind that one, we either don't have a father or that we don't actually need a father, um, that there isn't a father out there looking for us, that we can make it on our own, that we can do it ourselves and that we've come this far without one, so why do we need one? Um, but yeah, God is so... He's so wanting connection with us. And this, yeah, this orphan spirit, I guess, it comes in different forms and it, it's a subtle lie in the back of our head and actually disguises itself as independence or self-courage or any of these things of the world um, when really God actually wants us to depend on him and he wants us to seek after him. He wants connection with us. He is you know, pulling up his robe and running towards us with open arms. Mm. And I just think he's saying, turn around. You know, we're looking the other way. He wants us to just run to him. So, yeah. So good. It's such a key for us this morning as we respond. Because, you know, the thing that stops us putting on the garment that we get for free is that orphan spirit. It's the lie of the enemy that says, I'm not worthy to wear it. The king has invited us in, and he's given it to you. He said, it's right here. And the thing that stops us is not the devil. It's not the enemy. It's not all the other stuff we like to think it is. It's actually an orphan spirit, which is from the devil, but that says, actually, I'm not worthy to put on the robe that he's given me for free. Actually, I don't feel like I'm worthy to stand in that place. And I want to tell you something this morning. You're not worthy but Jesus is, and that's why we need salvation. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If you have any questions or would like more information, please contact us at melbournelightschurch.com.au.